book of Revelation. We only have one more. Okay, so uh, if you have your Bibles, if you'll open them up with me to Revelation chapter 21, we'll beginning at, be beginning at verse 9 of Revelation chapter 21. Okay, and now if you are able, if you will stand with me for the reading of God's Word. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was that like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first one's foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On on no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no more night. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we spend this Sunday morning focused on your word here at the end of Revelation, we pray that your Holy Spirit will be a work in our hearts and our minds. And on this Memorial Day, we remember, we remember our lost veterans in the wars that have gone. Lord, we remember so many families who have suffered because of that. And Lord, we pray for them. 
We pray for your hand of encouragement, and we are so very grateful. We are so very grateful for their sacrifice, the freedoms that we have in this nation. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. Thank you for your grace that so abounds to us today. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First, let me uh, say a word or two about myself. I like to read novels. I do. Some of you might be like me. I've read thousands of novels in my lifetime, and in the last couple of decades, I've become a bit jaded when it comes to novels. I simply don't want to waste my time with a long novel that seems to drag on and is long or tedious. So if I begin to find a novel a bit tedious, I'll skip ahead to the end to see if the reward is worth the work. (laughs) Anybody else like me who does that? Okay, well, you might get there, okay? This This is what, by the way, God is letting us do in this amazing apocalyptic book of Revelation. And this is point one on your outline. If you like to keep notes, it's in the middle of your bulletin there. God is giving us a look at the end so we'll see that the hard work, the tedious work, the trials and temptations, the pains and the losses are all worth it. That the payoff is worth it. And so that our lives today will be transformed by eager anticipation of what is ahead. Last week we began to look at the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that come out of, comes out of heaven. And this week we'll continue to look at that. And uh, I'd like us to take a good close look at the symbolism here, because I want to discuss what that symbolism tells us. In verses uh, 9 to 10, we're told that John is being taken to see the wife of the bride of the Lamb, and then he's taken to the new Jerusalem. See, the imagery is combined here very closely. The bride of the Lamb is clearly all of God's people, and we've seen this before. And so is the New Jerusalem, who is the bride's husband. Well, we're told that she's the wife of the Lamb, so now obviously the groom is Jesus. You see how there's a continuing kind of mixing of metaphors, if you will, which is quite common in this kind of literature, if you ever read other apocalyptic literature. That's why if we try to interpret this kind of literature in a literalistic way, as unfortunately many try to do, we get into very serious trouble. See, the lion is the lamb who brings about God's purposes, who is also the groom about about ready to marry the bride, who is the city. See, this symbolism is used quite freely. Then uh, if you look at verses 10 to 14 with me, by the way, this is one long sentence in the Greek. It's one final vision on a high mountain. Back in uh, chapter 17, we saw that John was taken away to see another city. That city was Babylon, the harlot in the desert. And as we read along, we're, we're being called to set these two cities side by side to compare and to contrast, if you will. We're told that this city, God's city, shines with the glory of God. See, the city, God's people, reflect the beauty 
and glory of God. See, scholars have seen that this is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 60, and you're welcome to turn there with me if you like, Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, where we read this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you, the nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. And then if uh, you jump with me down to verse 19. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Then all your people will be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. And so this is point two on your outline. To speak of the Lord as our everlasting light is to say that the presence of the Lord is very powerfully there. His glory shines, and it resonates and reflects in the city, in the bride, in God's people. So now let me see if I can explain some of the other details here. The city shines like jasper, clear as crystal. See, the jasper, even diamonds in those days, because they didn't have modern techniques to cut them, were opaque rather than clear. So the idea here is that it's sparkling, it shines, it sparkles or gleams. The gold and the jewels here are in contrast to chapter 17 and 18, where the harlot Rome, Babylon, hoards wealth for herself. Here the wealth is the common building blocks of the massive city, which... uh, when I always, every time I read this, it reminds me of a particular story of a rich man who was uh, getting close to death, and he was very sad because he'd worked so hard for his money, and he wanted to be able to take it with him to heaven. So he began to pray that he might be able to take some of his wealth with him. An angel hears his plea and appears to him and says, sorry, but you can't take it with you. The man implores the angel to speak to God to see if he might bend the rules a bit. The man continues to pray that his wealth could follow him, so the angel reappears and informs the man that God has decided to allow him to take one suitcase with him. He's overjoyed, so the man gathers his largest suitcase and fills it with pure gold bars and places it beside his bed. Soon after that, he dies and he shows up at the gates of heaven to be greeted by St. Peter. St. Peter, uh, seeing the suitcase, says, hold on, you can't bring that in here. But the man explains to him that uh, he has permission. And so he asks him to verify his story with the Lord. Well, sure enough, St. Peter checks and comes back and says, you're right, you're allowed to carry carry on one bag, but I'm supposed to check his contents before letting you in. So St. Peter opens a suitcase to inspect the worldly items that the man found too precious to leave behind and exclaims, you brought pavement? See, the gold is the common stuff 
of the New Jerusalem. And see, we're uh, told that the city was, has a high wall with 12 gates. 12, remember, always symbolizes God's people. So in other words, all of God's people enter, all of them. Not a one is left behind. All are included from the 12 tribes of Israel to the new covenant church represented by the 12 apostles, and we see their names on the gates. All of us, all who trust in the Lamb of God who was crucified and has risen, none of God's elect will be left behind. And so if you are in Christ, if you have trusted him for salvation, you will not be left behind. Now let me uh, clarify something else, and this is point three. The wall isn't for defense. It's merely the structure of the city. The twelve foundations are the apostles. The church rests on the apostles. Or as Paul puts it in Ephesians, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And now in verses 15 through 17 is the measuring of the city. The measuring rod in uh, John's time is just over 10 feet long. And the size of the city here we're given is enormous. It isn't like any other city. The wall is 144 cubits. And that measurement makes two key points. 144 cubits is about 150 miles. So the first point is this. The city is massive, and it's large enough to include all God's people that have ever lived. Point four, though, is a little more important. The number 144 is symbolic. It's 12 times 12 again. We've seen this before. In other words, it's inclusive. Again, it's an emphasis on the inclusivity of all God's people who have ever lived or ever will live. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for all of his people. Let me, indicate, let me point out something else here. In Ezekiel chapter 9, he spends, or Ezekiel, not chapter 9, Ezekiel spends nine chapters giving us a design for the New Jerusalem and especially the temple. In Isaiah chapter 54, we get description of the gates as of crystal and walls of precious stones. Zechariah chapter 2 tells us that Jerusalem will need no walls because God himself will be a wall of fire around her. See, if we were to take them all literally, we would be in clear conflict. So let me be clear, as I've tried to indicate all along through this series, these details are not to be seen as literal. They're symbolic. The entire concept has to do with the new Jerusalem shining with the glory of God, the gems, the gold. All of this isn't literal, but it has to do with the full presence of the glory of God. Ezekiel's new Jerusalem had 18,000 cubits all around. John's is nearly 2,000 times larger. The massive size would be illustrative. And it's a, a message of comfort for the Christians of John's time, who they only knew themselves as a small remnant of persecuted believers. The message in part is that God has many of his people whom he's yet to call to himself, many millions and even billions more. The gates are described as giant pearls. An expensive pearl in those days was worth more than 
most other possessions. You might remember Christ's illustration of the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 13. Do you remember? Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. See, so once again, what's being highlighted is the inestimable value and worth of being a part of the eternal city, being a part of God's people, and that it is worth giving up everything we have in this world to be a part of it. Now, we're also told that there's no temple in the New Jerusalem. Do you see that here? And this is the opposite of, uh, by the way, the traditional Jewish writings which aren't in our Bible. For them, the new temple was the central aspect of the new Jerusalem. A commonly recited Jewish prayer had 18 benedictions which looked for the renewal of the temple. But here, the new city itself is a temple, the dwelling place of God. God lives among his people, and they live in him. Well, this is a reality in part for us now it'll be taken to a much, much deeper level. And then we're told the, the city won't need a sun or moon. The entire created or, order will walk in explicit dependence on God. God himself, in all his glory, will be our light and glory, infinitely better than the sun and moon. See, the cities of that day were dark at night, as you can imagine which is starkly different than the New Jerusalem, which will be filled with continual light. Everything that's glorious among the nations also will be brought in. All that is beautiful, all that is good, the nations bring to offer God in light of his greater glory. See, back in Revelation chapter 18, if you might remember in our series, the nations brought their wealth into Babylon. Now the faithful believers from those cities Bring all that is good and glorious and true into the city of God. They can enter the city only because their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Do you see that here? And the gates are always open, which tells us there is no need for fear of enemies. Now, all of this not only gives us hope and joy and promise, it's also serving as a warning. This is a holy city, and no one who still harbors evil will be there. The wicked will be banished. And then we're told a river flows from God's throne, which should cause us to remember that it's Jesus who is the water of life. He is the living water that satisfies eternally. He is full and true refreshment throughout eternity, and it flows from the throne as an eternal supply of life. The imagery of Jesus, the living water, is now here united with the first paradise of Eden and the tree of life. The trees produce fruit every month. It is constant. It is one tree with 12 fruits. All believers, represented again by that number 12, have one source of eternal life, and that is Jesus. The fall will be completely reversed. The curse will be abolished. All of history began in a garden, the Garden of Eden. But history ends in a city. And we, his servants, will spend eternity worshiping and serving him. Look at verses 22-3. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. 
Latreo, the Greek word for serve used here, has the idea of worshiping and serving. And then we will amazingly see God's face. This ought to remind us of an event in the life of Moses. Do you remember? If you've got your Bibles, you're welcome to turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. It's when Moses was interceding on behalf of the Israelites, pleading with the Lord to be present with his people. God agrees because he is pleased with Moses. And in chapter 3, we get this exchange beginning at verse 18. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, my rear end, if you will. But my face must not be seen. God passed by him, showing him only his backside, because the full revelation of God's glory in his face was too holy, even for Moses to see, or he would die. But soon, soon we God's sons and daughters, the bride of the Lamb, we will live with him and see his face and the full glory of his appearance. A light that completely banishes all darkness. His face so holy it obliterates all sin. A purity that abolishes all evil. When Moses saw a mere glimpse on the backside of God, his face reflected and shone with that glory. I'm coming back to this. But for now, let's go back to the shape and measurement of the New Jerusalem for a moment. I purposely skipped over something very important. I I kind of highlighted it as I was reading. The New Jerusalem isn't simply described as square, but cubic. See, the city isn't just massive in length and width. It's also 1,500 miles high. Think about that for a moment. At the top of Mount Everest, which is six miles above sea level, it's already very difficult to breathe. Now imagine a city 1,500 miles high. Now if we're familiar with the Old Testament, this image should cause us to consider two things. Do you all remember back in the early chapters of Genesis when humanity was attempting to build towers so that they could reach up to God at the Tower of Babel? Do you remember? Here's an important point. What humanity couldn't accomplish in Babel, a city to the heavens, God grants as an overwhelming, amazing gift, a thousand times more massive than they could have ever imagined. There's something else. There's only one structure that is designed and described as a cube in all of Scripture. Anybody know what that is? Anybody? It's the Holy of Holies. This is where God perfectly manifests himself. The full glory and holiness of God is manifest in the Holy of Holies. 
It was the place where the high priest entered only once a year and only carrying the blood of the sacrifice of a bull. A place that was so holy that if the high priest wasn't properly prepared, he might die while he's there. And so here's the point. Not only will God live with his people in Jerusalem, not only will the entire city be like a temple, but, and this is point five on your outline, the entire city will be like the most holy place, the holy of holies. It's therefore not surprising that the city doesn't need a temple other than the Lord himself. Believers will experience God's full presence in total intensity as never before. If the church is a temple already, as Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2, for through him we, were, we have both have access to the Father by one spirit, consequently you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. See, our future experience is even better than this. The whole city is the holiest place inviting continual worship and enjoyment of God's presence. There's no temple in the New Jerusalem. There's no need for a place that is a mediating presence between humans and God. God is fully present in all his glory with his glorified people. And remember, there's no sun or moon. They give us light, but which we need for life. But in the full presence of God, there is no need for light. There is no darkness. There's no works of darkness. All because the glory of God and the Lamb are on full display. All the experience of love and intimacy that we might experience today is just a small foretaste of the joyous intimacy we will experience with our Savior in the new heaven and the new earth. The greatest marriage in the world with the greatest romantic intimacy imaginable is just a shadow of the full ecstatic intimacy that we will experience in the new heaven and the new earth. For his first sermon in an elementary preaching class, Lawrence, who was an African student, chose a text describing the joys we'll share when Christ returns and ushers us to our heavenly home. He read, he's, his words were this way, I've been in the United States for several months now. I've seen the great wealth that's here, the fine homes and cars and clothes. I've listened to many sermons in churches here too. But I've yet to hear one sermon about heaven. Because everyone has so much in this country, no one preaches about heaven. People here don't seem to need it. In my country, most people have very little. So we preach on heaven all the time. We know how much we need it. Do you know how much you need it? See, a man who is uh, on a layover at an airport doesn't go into the bathroom, frown at its decor, and start redecorating. Why? Because he doesn't live there. He has a home in another place. 
And while he's away, he'll get by with only what he absolutely needs in order to have more money with which to furnish his permanent home. And so I have to ask, why do we Christians work so hard at trying to make our life in this world more comfortable? This is just the airport, and we are in transit. We should spend our energy on enhancing our eternal reward and not worry so much about the bare walls and the airport restrooms. He finished his sermon with this. Let's invest our lives in what will really last and matter for all eternity. We need to be speaking and living out the gospel in the lives of others. Or as our vision puts it, loving people to real life in Jesus, cherishing every moment, every opportunity to share the love and forgiveness that we have in Jesus, sharing this amazing hope that we have in Christ with all our neighbors, all of them. Let me go back a moment to seeing God's face. Face to face in complete intimacy with our Lord. And this is point six on your outline. When we get pictures of angels in the presence of God, they have to hide their faces with their wings. Not for us. Can you believe? Something that even angels can't do. We won't die. We won't be ashamed. We won't be consumed. We will be transformed. You know, often when I speak to people about heaven and our expectations of heaven, people will tell me about their loved ones that they look forward to seeing again and spending eternity with. My uh, mother died in the Lord 19 years ago at the age of 66. She died of a heart attack. And I, I'm a mama's boy, what can I say? And at the last trumpet, her name will be called. And at the second resurrection, she will rise again to new life. I believe it'll be wonderful to see her again in a resurrected, eternal, healthy body, and I'm sure she'll be happy to see me again, maybe. But all of this will pale. All of this will seem insignificant to the face-to-face -face intimacy we will have with our Creator. The face-to-face -face intimacy that we will have with our one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, while we have it in part now, we will have it in full measure at the new heaven and the new earth. What we look forward to most, paling in all, all other future hopes, is that amazing intimacy. Every joy will be perfected. Every ecstasy will be on measure. Every love will be deep for all eternity. And all this will be centered in that face-to-face -face intimacy that we will have with our Savior. See, this is my vision. This is what inspires me every day to prayer and to sharing the gospel. It's what inspires me every day to pray for each of you and to pray for those around me who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. When I find myself filled with this vision, I find myself desiring very different things than the corrupting world has to offer. I pray that that's your vision today. I pray that your greatest desire is to see young people and old come into a passionate relationship with their Savior. I pray that our hearts and minds continue to be filled with heaven, that we might be truly earthly good.
that we're empowered to live out our calling, using our time, our talent, and treasures for eternal purposes. This is really what my time as transitional pastor is all about here with you, to enliven that great vision of heaven, of the new New Jerusalem, enliven you to live into the vision that God has given us here at Parkway, to love people to real life in Jesus, and our mission of inviting neighbors in our growing diverse community to know the light, love, and hope of Christ. This is what it's all about. This is our vision, our mission, given to each one of us by God. So let's fill our minds and hearts with where we're going. And with passionate prayer, bring our neighbors to the throne of grace and to the truth of the new Jerusalem that they, might, they too might share in the love of Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, what an amazing joy it is to be able to see the end, to see the amazing hope that we have before us, to be a part of this new city, this new Jerusalem that you are creating and preparing. Lord, set our minds in heaven that we might truly be eternally earthly good. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing love. I want to uh, invite you now to join me in our corporate prayer of confession, which you'll find in the inside back page of your bulletin. Let's pray this prayer together. Most holy and merciful Father, we confess to you and to one another that we have sinned against you by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not fully loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not always had in us the mind of Christ. 